and we are live. Forget everything you learned about government and your youth propaganda camps, because we're about to tear the fabricated documents of the state cucks to shreds. We will tear down the walls of their places of worship and grind them into a fine powder. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Civil Offense, the last libertarian podcast. My name is Ahmed, zero female friends, Malie, and I am back from Utah five days sober. Today, we're going to be talking about the state once again, and uh, our topic, as you can tell by the title, is agorism uh, and the state, and I am here with none other than the esoteric entity himself, Esso. Hello. Hello, of Back Alley Philosophy. How are you doing, Esso? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, for quite a while, I was just preferring Esso, but honestly, with some of the topics that have been studying recently, the, the, the original name Esoteric Entity, I was kind of falling out of favor with it just because like it, like I didn't really understand, uh, like I just kind of understood esotericism as something with a deeper meaning. Well, now I'm actually coming to understand a lot of these topics a bit better, and it's sort of, sort of coming around full circle into being appropriate again. But that's not really what we'll be discussing here. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I guess that's the case. Uh, yeah, so tell the audience a bit more about yourself, other than just that. You know, who are you? Well, uh, I'm somebody that has, you know, been running a YouTube channel that used to be at least, you know, somewhat active in libertarian circles, uh, stopped posting as much around 2020, 2021. Um, the reason for that is for a variety of factors, but primarily uh, it's because I started trying to uh, live a network lifestyle with a bunch of friends in person. And uh, as a result, I had to sort of change my priorities up. But, you know, the other factor that caused me to uh, consider looking at the purpose of even making content differently was some issues that I kept running into when I would actually take the time to look at the way a lot of libertarians were trying to characterize uh, societies or claims about societies themselves. Um, a lot of people didn't even, didn't even seem to be treating what they were saying as though they, it, it is a study about society, the nature of society itself. And it sort of, it's sort of immediately obvious that it is when you take into consideration concepts that are key to even talking about libertarianism, such as coercion or property, inherently have baked in assumptions about the nature of action and therefore a bunch of other, you know, concepts key to studying society itself. So I essentially had to reevaluate a essentially everything that I came to understand about libertarianism. And after a few years of doing that, uh, we're getting back into uh, streaming and making content again. And I think that I'm pretty, you know, I'm at least confident enough in what I've come to understand that I think I have a fairly fleshed out idea of what its implications actually are. Yeah. Good to hear. And what a return for you, right? Yeah. And, yeah, so uh, as it comes to, as I sort of came to understand, I was actually looking in the wrong place to understand a lot of the uh, shortcomings I was seeing. It's not other libertarian, you know, other people making claims about libertarianism. Most of the, uh, most of the help that I got was, if, if any, from logicians, studying logicians. 
All right. And just some announcements before the show. Make sure to go to AhmedMali.com and sign up for the email list for the latest updates. Check out Civil Offense on Rumble. Yes, we are streaming there right now. Just make sure if they uh, shut me down here on YouTube to follow me on there. Uh, I don't know how risky this conversation is to to YouTube at the moment. but I'll be careful to not cross TOS because some of these topics very easily (laughs) could. All right. Well, uh, just say in Minecraft and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Uh, and remember to like, comment and share the show. If you're watching live right now, please do like. Uh, yeah, just that that helps for sure. Um, but just for starters, you are someone who has made plenty of progress in examining the state and how it operates. Uh, so before we get into the main part of the questions, I also wanted a brief overview of agorism uh, for those that are maybe in the more politicized crowd, uh, many who refer to themselves as libertarian, but really haven't heard of this. Uh, could you explain what it is? Uh, so agorism is it's commonly understood uh, as you were even talking with me about in DMs as essentially just the ANCAP movement, but made of people that don't vote or and caps that want to that uh want to sell black market goods quote unquote but of course that you know what what that is without a proper you know method of analysis even to those people's up in the air um what agorism actually is is an expansion upon libertarianism based on what everybody i think would agree or at the very least i consider to be one of the most important expansions upon the study of libertarianism and uh the austrian method uh that was established which was by which was by murray rothbard in the 1960s and essentially what this observation was is that if we were to approach the study of of concepts in society from any particular methodological perspective then because there's a metaphysical concept it's not a principle it's something that emerges because of logic itself um known as concordance and concordance is a general metaphysical rule where and metaphysics being what informs like your methodology and why your methodology implies the things that it does about the top the subjects that it touches upon the sort i guess think of it as the 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 rules of your methodology being set by um this foundation concepts like the nature of information itself or action would would fall into this category of uh topic but so what Rothbard pointed out is that is essentially just what we were talking about before the stream started, that libertarianism is making definitive claims about the nature of concepts in societies by its nature. Uh, if it were to try to be making claims about coercion, for instance, or property, any any claim that it makes about these topics are going to entail baked-in assumptions about the nature of action itself, which is why um, I would argue properly understood. Oh, well, actually, let me digress for a minute. But essentially what Rothbard uh, pointed out is because of this, this means that um, if you're going to make claims about concepts and ethics, for example, because ethical concepts entail um, 
baked in assumptions about the nature of action than the methodology that would be used for making other claims which emerge as the result of the nature of action need to be following the same methodology because otherwise there's an inconsistency. So if I'm making claims about the study of economies, um, you know, this being the nature of action, what causes action to emerge and therefore what action implies, then what action implies will have the same set of, uh, it, it, it'll have the same set of rules that are applied to anything else that emerges out of it, say concepts and ethics, because concepts and ethics are characterized by the actions which were performed to cause the specific things that claims are being made about to emerge in the first place. And I said, well, the problem is that uh, Rothbard had either because of some cognitive biases or because, you know, for whatever reason, you know, this may be, he didn't really apply this to the to certain concepts in the study of society beyond economics. A perfect example of this would be uh, politics. Um, because if you look at... Um, you know, if you look at the nature of politics or how, um, you know, political claims are expressed in society, this presupposes a bunch of organizational functions. This presupposes a bunch of social structures being present, which needs to have a basis for, you know, if we were to take this approach to studying societies, the approach would be to study how they come to emerge itself. Uh, for example, how does this how do norms get expressed around property and around economies that would allow something like a tax scheme to emerge to begin with? What are the organizations that cause this to be and how are they able to coordinate? And this is the approach, essentially, that agorism takes to studying libertarian to studying concepts that libertarianism would make claims towards. Essentially, agorism is an expansion upon what libertarianism itself means, and it adds essentially it, it adds essentially a sociological dimension to libertarianism, which was previously absent. And this is important because it allows us to study things like organization models, or it allows us to uh, take into consideration power relations that would actually go into informing why people behave in certain ways and by, you know, what is incentivized to what would be incentivized to see these behaviors emerge. Right. And where uh, so, those incentives come from. Sorry. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of break this down a little bit. First of all, I wanted to know, uh, I've heard the term agorist class theory before. Is this pretty much also a description of that? What kind of differentiates agorism itself as a term from agorist class theory as a term? Well, agorist class theory would be the specific, would be specifically the way that libertarianism understood from, uh, understood as a methodology would study how, uh, would study essentially the relationship between societies and the state, mm -hmm. uh, societies being essentially 
uh, networks of people that associate with one another um, either around or because of norms that they create and defend that define economies, that define the way people are able to, like what can be claimed as property in those societies that define um, in set sense of incentive or risk that, that go into defining like, and this is important because this has direct implications for what people actually consider to be profitable or unprofitable because there's that this is um, something that is currently lacking in the like Austro-Libertarian analysis as a lot of people conventionally think of it. Um, the like A equals A um, understanding of Aristotelian metaphysics, which was not actually based on that's not actually how libertarians have conventionally approached these topics. That's something that was lifted from the objectivist movement. And but but one of the problems that this creates is it means that we could only treat incentives or norms that characterize the way people coordinate in a vacuum. It means that we that uh, it means that all we could say about it at most is, well, because these norms are present, that might imply these things and that's or that's why we see these trends playing out. But then, because of the fact that norms themselves are the emergent property of what technique um, is actually available, so context people have for using their resources and the ability for them to act on their resources, because this actually directly informs property norms, and because property norms inform economies, uh, this is clearly a very flawed analysis that doesn't really allow one to even begin studying a lot of these concepts beyond just, well, they exist. In fact, a lot, in fact, a big problem that's emerged because of this is it results in a lot of people just, you know, dismissing very important lines of questioning with, oh, that's just because there's some ideological conspiracy. Well, that's just because culture. But the problem is that the way people understand, like going back to where we started here, those claims themselves have baked in assumptions about the nature of action. So this is essentially just a non-answer. It's a thought-stopping cliche. Yeah, could you actually clarify that last part? Because I, I asked you about that on Discord as well. Yeah. Like, I, I got it more after you talked about it, but I kind of was wondering if you could break it down some more for people. So um, if you're going to, I mean, I suppose, it, like, could you ask a bit more of a specific question? Because I was sort of, like, yeah, like talking how, about the baked-in assumptions, like, right, talking about the baked-in assumptions when it comes to claims, and you talked about uh, the validity of a claim as well when you described that. Okay, um, so, for example, if we're talking about the nature of action, well, what action implies, the methodology that emerges out of the nature of action is going to be informed directly by how one understands what causes action. And this is actually this actually has very important implications for the study of society 
because um, and this gets overlooked quite a bit by both libertarians and Austrians alike, as is evidenced by the fact that a lot of them treat very important metaphysical discussions underneath the nature of action as though they're essentially semantic games like uh, free will versus determinism, for instance. Well, the the answer to that question is going to directly is going to directly inform what action implies. If determinism, if the way determinists characterize action is valid, then it means that all action is just a response to things in the environment that's yeah. out that's outside of the control of people to, uh, you know, to inform how that fits into their narrative of the world, which would imply that something like intrinsic value exists. It would imply that uh, behavior is inherently gamified by, um, you know, by the environment, which would mean essentially that there's no reason for a methodology that would be dedicated to studying societies that would be distinguishable from, say, the study of physics or chemistry. Because you could descend, because this would mean you could essentially create like formulate calculations of how people could act using just stochastics, um, which is which is a subfield in studying probability in statistics. Yeah, could you also go back to uh, what you're talking about with how culture emerges? Uh, sure. I, um, but this sort of get, but that would be. You know, I, I guess what I was sort of touching upon would, uh, in my previous point, would, I, I guess, uh, hint at the nature of culture itself. So culture is something that emerges because of the nature of norms in because of the nature of norms that are present in society. I mean, the specific, uh, you know, specific phrases or specific aesthetic may be um you know slightly different but as far as the actual things which performatively define culture so actions that would be signified with a certain understanding of culture like everything else in the study of society uh it would be defined by the way that people actually can act which is defined by the which is ultimately defined by technique which is, um, you know, another concept, I suppose, that we could get into. But We I have gotten into that a little bit on the show before. Uh, in one of the last episodes I did with Garen when we were talking about the different uh, presidential campaigns, yeah. uh, basically using that to dismiss the idea that, obviously, uh, political uh, agents are actually doing anything ideological. Well, yeah, uh, technique would uh, be the defining basis for available norms because technique would contextualize the way that people can use resources, both by their availability and the way that people can act on them uh, to complement their own economic interests. So, 
if we were to apply this methodology to studying societies, what that would imply about the nature of culture is that culture is not something that can just exist. It can just exist in a vacuum. It's not something that one can just, you know, have an idea uh, idea and impose it upon others. It's something that has to be a reflection of that society itself. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why um, in modernity, you only really see aesthetic differences uh, in culture, but in terms of the actual ways that people coordinate their lives, they all, uh, they all operate around sort of the same general... Um, the same general property norms and economic norms. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Um, so yeah. I was going to ask you, first of all, you know, uh, getting into it, what is a state? Because <laughs> I kind of clued it in, maybe not for those that were unaware, but um, yeah, like uh, this is kind of everything we talk about when we're saying like, you know, how society's uh, coordinated. So what is a state? <laughs> well, I wasn't exactly I wasn't exactly done with talking about the nature of action and don't worry this is actually relevant to understanding the nature of the state but why I um you know when people discuss libertarian free will uh that that is essentially a methodology um well a school of thought within metaphysics that uh itself is sort of what both liberalism and libertarianism in the uh you know in the approach to understanding societies emerged directly out of it's just that where liberals and libertarians converged is that liberals took the um like the socratic understanding of politics as you know polis not not being distinguishable from society itself Whereas libertarianism took this approach that I I just described, which is sort of evident, not very well articulated or understood by early anarchists, but it's very clearly established in when people like Proudhon talk about law by authority, uh, not law by authority, I mean, property by authority versus property by liberty. And when he elaborates as to the distinction it's it's purely performative so what this um but essentially there there wasn't really a clear demonstration of like the basis for libertarian for uh libertarian free will um unless you go back quite a ways and a lot of these um like 16th 15th century works are making very clear you know they they make very good um points but i think funnily enough the best the the, i said the the airtight piece of evidence that would cause me to say that the libertarian under like libertarian free will in metaphysics is essentially indisputably valid wouldn't come from uh the study of societies it would actually be from the work of a logician by the name of uh ludwig wittgenstein are you familiar with his work i am not well um he is somebody who spent the bulk of his career in academia and a lot of his earlier work trying to essentially construct a a perfectly logical spoken language like that was sort of 
I don't, I, there's a name for people that tried to take that approach to studying logic around the, it's a school of thought that kind of died out in the early 20th century because the, uh, the, the postmodern criti uh, criticisms of, of the modernist movement's assumptions about truth kind of, you know, kind of rendered that impossible, showed why that can't be. But in response to this, he wrote a book essentially right before he died called Tractatus, which was a repudiation of like what he spent his entire career trying to demonstrate, like showing why he came to the conclusion that it's impossible as well. And one of the most important points that he demonstrates in Tractatus is what I'm referring to here, which is what he refers to as the language game or uh, language gamification, uh, the concept that he demonstrates. And I think he demonstrates effectively that it exists. But essentially what this point that he's that he makes is, say, for example, you were to take any group of people or just, you know, two people to a, the, a, an open clearing you take these same people to this same open clear okay it was my, my bad I, I mixed up uh tractatus and yeah i'm pretty sure garen told me about him before that's where i heard my, the name because I, I thought it sounded kind of familiar but I, I just wasn't sure okay uh thank you for the correction uh, but what's up garen <laughs> <laughs> but the point that uh i but the point that he was making is if you were to take anybody, uh, any people really, but just two people to a clearing, say it's a clearing and the clearing has a tree in the middle. You tell them to, uh, focus on the tree, take in, in uh, take in, you know, internalize the tree. Um, you can show them the exact same, you know, the, the exact same environmental factors, they can have the exact same environmental factors and the exact same subject as a point of reference. But as far as how that fits into their specific, like narrative of the world, it's ultimately going to be based on not just how they understand the, the nature of the tree but specifically what their attention was drawn to, what they were focusing on, um, part of their already established narrative of the world. Uh, if, if they had like a romantic picnic under a tree, that might change how they, you know, fit the meaning of the tree into their narrative of the world. Whereas if the other person doesn't have this experience or even had a similar experience, uh, ultimately... Ultimately, though, the point is that meaning itself is derived by one's already, uh, in part, already established internal rules that they would associate concepts with. So meaning itself is, in part, an emergent property of an internally abstract process that doesn't really have any calculatable rules. And, so what is this to say? Well, what this implies about, um, you know, the nature of action, because deliberate action is one of its emergent, one of its entailed properties that causes it to emerge is uh, meaning and how that meaning is applied to the environment. What it shows is that uh, essentially there is no there is no way to argue that action is the 
you know, it is a response to the environment because environment, the environment conveys no meaning. Meaning is an internally abstract process that one applies to their perception of reality, essentially. That reality itself is like an internal narrative that everyone has a different version of and the rules of it ultimately gamify how they view the implications of their actions. Okay. There. Uh, yeah. That's okay. So tracing that back, um, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're getting to with that point though, like uh, having to do with action and what it implies about it. Well, what that implies is that, well, this would be essentially the method, a methodological demonstration of specifically what it, you know, not just the thing, um, you know, not just that the Austrian method is correct, but specifically mm -hmm. what the Austrian method being correct implies about the nature of societies from a new, you know, a new angle. You know, not only can you say value is subjective, but you can, uh, you know, not just because of what Manger uh, observed about the, uh, you know, the law of marginal utility, but now you don't need to refer to an axiom. You can refer to observed properties about the nature of information and how that how that affects action. And it gives us more context about, um, you know, gives us more context about the study of societies. But more importantly, it means that, uh, you know, it, it means essentially like this is what I mean when I've been saying that norms are the emergent property of action itself. Okay. Because norms are because cur as they're currently understood from the Socratic assumptions about polis that, you know, this is something that emerges out of ideas or is indistinguishable from organic social norms. What this would show is that, um, what this would show is that norms have to be this emergent property because in order for that to not be the case you would have to refer to something external in the environment that would inherently gamify behavior somehow and what this observation about the nature of information would mean is that nothing like that can exist how how people even interact in the environment is an emergent property of what's you know of things that can't even really be calculable. This is why in response to say the printing press being created, this dramatically influenced the way that language was spread and evolved. This radically changed the way that a lot of like early social movements were even interpreted because previously narratives were directly tied to language because of the fact that the only people that learned language or could convey languages were a class in the state, uh, scribes. Mm. So they were directly tied to the technique of maintaining the state. But if, you know, if it became easier to spread literature and people, uh, you know, could read and write, then, you know, the state doesn't have that same dynamic of control that it previously had, and it lost that dynamic of control because technique changed. That would be a perfect historical example of where this clearly shows that 
Um, you know, this clearly shows that ultimately norms are just an expression of what's available and how people can act and what actions they can maintain. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up that example about technique changing. I was thinking about this earlier today with AI. Like, I, I was thinking about how easy it would be for the state to track things, like using AI as far as like on, on cameras and all that, but at the same time, how much easier it would be uh, to sort of uh, use it yourself. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's a technology that you have as well. So well, a lot I, of people, I don't know. Uh, a lot of people fear monger about the ways that the state is trying to use neural nets, but the mm -hmm. implications of neural nets uh, coming into existence uh, itself kind of introduces something new. Like the way that the state currently tries to control the internet is something that would require... Um, an entire discussion in and of itself that I don't think I could, yeah. uh, I don't think we'd be able to go over here. But eventually, the approach that they're taking is essentially to just try to paywall everything and then vertically integrate any software that people mm -hmm. get use out of into this sort sort of disgusting homogenous server infrastructure right. that controls the way that people can act with their own you know computers. Well, the problem that neural nets introduce is that if you are able to use the algorithm, then you un then you inherently have access to the weights which trained it, which means that you could just create your own localized instance just by using it. There, there you, can grief, you can grief their server. Yeah, that, well, there isn't really... Well, what that means is there isn't really any way to create a like a paywall or some yeah. sort of proprietary dynamic because anybody could just create their own AI uh, based on the proprietary one because they inherently have access to the code which uh, allows them to understand its rules and why it yeah. works. And I was thinking about this with ChatGPT as well because did you see the uh, owner of ChatGPT or the guy that I guess uh, started it? He was like testifying uh, in some hearing about how there's it's dangerous and the government needs to regulate it. Yeah, they're they're absolute. I I think I think in the modern context that would probably be the best example of technique changing having yeah. you know, crippling effects on the way that the state is able to function. I mean, the state wants to you know wants to have their the way that they're reacting to it they're they're reacting to it the same way that you know they do anytime something subversive comes along they say we got it under control it's not a threat don't use it for subversive purposes please and simultaneously they turn around and tell the people that they think are still you know enfranchised this is the biggest threat that's ever existed uh you need to be like you need to be scared of this thing it could uh it could undermine your property title. It could undermine your uh, your lifestyle. You can't. You might not be able to get money. Or <laughs> it's. Uh... But yeah, that's ultimately the problem that we're seeing. And I, you know, have people that are still, you know, unfortunately, in a position where they're forced to be wages that I am in regular contract, uh, regular contact yeah. with and try to do stuff with. And something that they're told that, you know, I've gotten firsthand, um, you know, firsthand insight into is that 
essentially firms are just being forced by the government to list out job applications to tell people that they are hiring but internally how they're allocating resources around hiring practices they're either not really allocating funds to hiring people because they perceive it wow. to be too much of a risk because anybody could just walk out at any time because of GPT, because of the fact that they have so much leverage over what they can do with their own computers. Now that there's essentially at any given moment, dozens of opportunities just for using that that yeah. could uh, net them a lot of money. Um, or they, in, in order to even like allocate funds to hiring some of the requirements for getting a wage uh you know getting a wage job requires so much leverage being placed over somebody that uh it it does it's not even really worth doing or it's impo it's actually a an impossible standard altogether uh, i think a good, perfect example of this would be this job application that the person there's a programming language called swift that was created in the last five or six years. And the person who created that language posted a picture of their job application. They tried to apply for um, in some like legal market IT firm. And on the application, they mentioned that it requires eight years of experience in this programming language that was created by this person and was only been around for six years. Wow. No, I mean, that that whole uh, job application thing, I haven't even heard of that, but that's huge, honestly. Well, and that's one example. Uh, like, there's a lot of people fear-mongering about uh, neural nets because mm -hmm. of some of the things that the government can create with it. And th those are, you know, those are a valid reason to be concerned. But there's, you know, the thing that a lot of people are missing because they're so caught up trying to discuss ideology or they're trying to treat cultural and political norms as though they just exist in a vacuum and there's no real way of like no they're, they're just sort of axioms that define society what they're missing is that they're essentially technological social revolution that's happening right under their nose and it's already having demonstrable effects on the way that certain organizations are able to coordinate beyond just what can be stated through ideology or considered the, the consequence of a cultural practice. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did want to get into the definition of, of a state because we mentioned the word a lot. So it would definitely be. Hold on. Uh, let's see what we got here. Lost vision of your guest, throw a ward in the bush. Yeah, I mean, I, I accidentally cut you out for like one second there, but uh, your thing wasn't cut off for like, they're like, they can get the gist of it. Um, it was like one word probably at most. Uh, let's see. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, my if, bad about that. L me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's all right. If I was out like that one second where I was out, it, there wasn't really anything too important that was i'm pretty there. sure it was a pause in your words honestly because yeah. like it, it went from one word to another and it was seamless honestly yeah it's it's fine i don't think anything was lost yeah okay but, but uh yeah so what is a state i i you know i've been waiting to get into this question with you all right well a state in its most basic form is a is a reserve bank that makes a uh that makes an agreement with a militia with a a militia firm to i said 
there's a bit here that needs to be said, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So essentially what you need to understand and understanding that the way a state is set up is two things need to really be established as norms in order to have a polit- in order to have um you know politically defended norms on property or organ um or organizations that prop up uh political institutions and fundamentally and these can be identified fundamentally by essentially like essentially choke points of leverage that the state exerts over people like if you were to not associate with the legal economy at all and try to uh you know try to just live independently what are the functions that are being performed by the state that would stop you from being able to do so and this this is the most direct way that you can identify these and what all of them ultimately boil down to would be the state being able to defend property titles and the state being able to plan interest rates on exchange and those two norms are expressed in society through uh, I, I if i said property titles i mean i meant fiat property norms mm. okay. but um how pro- fiat property norms are practically expressed in modern societies would be through the defense of property titles and how the planning of interest rates would be prop would be properly understood to be expressed in society would be um the establishment of fiat money and this is the reason why I've come to the conclusion that in its most basic form, a state is the conspiracy between a reserve bank and a militia firm. This also goes into uh, how states um, or like political territories claimed by states are even established to begin with in function. Now, typically, the the actual active part of using violence to establish these territories isn't something modern states have to do, because whenever one collapses, these territories were sort of already set up by the previous state. Mm. So all the bank has to do is just, you know, give a loan to another militia firm. And there you go. Process has been able to just be started all uh, again. But essentially what a state is, is when a bank issues loans to a militia firm in the fiat currency that they want to establish, the, the currency that they want to establish as that society's fiat, they um, give out a loan to that militia firm um, to, they give out a, a loan to that militia firm to go around and arbitrarily enact violence in such a way where they can start to where based on the reserve banks are like what the the bank is is backing up with their loans um they use this as resources to essentially outmight anybody that would be in those areas defending their own uh resources and defending their own claims and forcing them to have to go through the militia firm or some extension of the militia firm in order to say that they have resources then they make it so in order for some like in order for them to uh you know the people in those societies to claim 
a house, for example, or claim resources, they would have to go through these uh, artificial these uh, artificial titles that the militia firm tries to defend, which means essentially that the militia firm is able to impose costs that are unilaterally determined by them onto people trying to access these resources, which then means that they can effectively force everyone in those societies to use the fiat currency issued by the bank as the medium of exchange, which allows them to control um, supply, how resources are distributed in that area, the medium of exchange that they use, and what effectively even counts as property. So it allows them to, that would allow an organization to be able to establish politically defended norms and would perfectly explain what we're seeing today. But because the nature of technique changes and, you know, because of factors that emerge out of society that aren't really able to be accounted for, there isn't really a straightforward answer in in saying that, like, in giving a specific process through which a state is established, because right. that that process itself changes based on social context. Okay, so before I ask that, I need to ask this: Why? <laughs> um. In regards to like what's why the, why is this the case? Why are states formed? <laughs> not even not even like how are they formed? Just why? Well, presumably because uh, I mean there could be really any re uh, any reason you know somebody just wants to live as a welfare queen and is completely <laughs> amoral and doesn't want to. But yeah, it ultimately comes down to states are able to be formed. You have some actors that are willing to express power over others in a way that would uh, cause a state to be formed. And after the state is formed, it creates a sort of in, it creates a sort of internal, um, set of incentives for the people running it that all sort of gamify their behavior in a mm -hmm. way where maintaining their lifestyle as agents of this organization directly you know allows them to like coordinate in almost a social system where they understand what has to be done in order to maintain the state because functions because maintaining these key functions of the state are key to like expressing this control over society that then allows the state to, you know, allow to, that allows the state to be, to, to continue running. Yeah. So yeah, before I've actually, uh, we've talked about this on the show I had mentioned doing with Garen on the uh, like Trump stuff and DeSantis stuff. Um, basically Garen had given me an example about Jeff Bezos and he said, well, you know, well, obviously corporations uh, operate under the same manner too, when it comes to technique, but they don't have all the guns and the money. So he was saying, basically think about Jeff Bezos, but if he had the guns and the money, uh, he's not really going to be acting in a, in a manner in which, um, you know, he's trying to push some sort of ideology. It's going to be, how do I maintain the guns and the money? Yeah, exactly. Because their lifestyle and it is going to be directly dependent on this, I guess, thing that they've invested in and invest all of their behavior and time and resources into. And this thing, in order to be maintained, entails these steps that are required uh, for it to continue functioning. 
And I guess that's my biggest issue with one of the things that you were at. Like, we, we already kind of touched upon this. And what I've explained about, like, why I characterize at essentially why I would argue that the that Austro libertarianism is not an ideology, it's actually one of the steps in a methodology, and really, a, a, I would argue, a new, a new way of approaching sociology that's not, not really been explored as intimately as it should. But, like, when someone responds to this observation um, with, organizations don't act, man acts, those two point, what I've just established, and this point, uh, you know, this statement, man acts, not organizations, those two don't contradict one another. It's because man acts, and it is the way in which man acts that sets up these organizations. These organizations have functions that define them, and investing in them creates an internal incentive for the people who have to continue, um, you know, to continue maintaining them, which maintaining these organizations is dependent on these functions. So it sort it creates a sort of internal system where behavior is gamified in a certain direction beyond um, ideology or beyond any other considerations because this these functions that are required to maintain the firm um, in in order for anything else to be considered need to be met first. We're looking at you, Ignis. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard you use the direct quote I had given basically about uh, what uh, he had said, and that was a uh, quite the proper response. Um, I mean, I agreed on that. I, he, I guess I'll bring up some I mean, of like, the retorts he usually brings up. Yeah, um, he, this, he says well, this, like this he says basically. Is, well, well, sorry. let me say that um, he says like you know bullying politicians, and you even saw this claim in the in the in one of the servers. Uh, yeah. He said that like bullying politicians is the answer because it'll outweigh the other incentives that they have like this gamification even beyond you describing this he'll say okay well if i bully this politician if i go pay people to protest outside his house if i you know make his life a living hell then he's gonna act differently because obviously uh the, you know it, it's just so much outweighing the other thing well the nature of the i mean the nature of the quote-unquote protest is really going to determine the response from the state and if you want a perfect example of this um look at the difference between the lockdown pro uh lockdown protests quoted quote in the u.s and the trucker convoy that happened last year the response from yeah. the state was night and day um, people just holding up signs and screaming, we don't want you to do this. Uh, wh what exactly, like, what exactly is this telling the state uh, is fundamentally how you have to look at the means that you're employing. It's not the message that it's sending because the message that it's sending, even in performance, is like, e even as far as the meaning that's derived from it, is ultimately just going to be determined by the actions that were performed. Um, and you're, you know, to clarify, you're talking about the U.S. trucker convoy. 
Um, and the Canadian one as well. I mean, because there the were different US. like ways of enforcing both of those on like how the state reacted to them. Because the Canadian one, there was like a lot of people getting arrested for that, and yeah, I mean, even some people getting like trampled by horses and stuff. Well, what the means that they were performing in the U.S. were diametrically pro- opposed to the means that were being employed by the Canadian, uh, the original Canadian movement. Here's yeah, the <laughs> yeah. But the uh, the U.S. movement was essentially just truckers sticking signs on their bumpers um, and saying, we don't like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we we're opposed to this. Well, the Canadian one was actually truckers not actually taking supply to the routes that they were supposed to and blocking roads so that you know, so-called scabs couldn't. And, um, yeah, the, the, it's really the means that like, this would actually be a perfect example because the state, any time that somebody is just holding up signs, they, they actively encourage people to do this through media, through schools. If it, that, that itself should make you question whether or not this actually can even count as something that's a threat to them. If, uh, you know, the analogy that I used last night when replying to Ignis, say that you're a tactician and the, the army that you're strategizing against, um, you're, you're trying to decide how to allocate your resources and your tools, and they just kind of open up their gate and say, hey, buddy, come on in. Essentially, um, like trying to take holding up signs and protesting seriously when you understand the state as an organization model and you understand like what this implies is everything that it's like signaling to people is an attempt to try to get them to respond in a way that's advantageous to their you know the norms that they need to defend to continue functioning and when you understand that everything that the state does is going like as far as ideology or cultural signaling is going to be second to the functions of their organization, it's immediately obvious that this is just reverse psychology or uh, black propaganda as intelligence agencies like to refer to it. It's so, yeah, just- to... to- make a quick example out of this. Like if I'm bullying a politician, well, you know, I'll say me for the example, I suppose, but is that politician more likely to change the laws to remove, uh, you know, any sort of way in which I can now, uh, you know, or this person has leverage over me so that we're kind of even now. I mean, at that point you have no more security, but at that point you have no more security. So it's like, okay, well maybe it would make more sense to call your armed guards to come get me. (laughs) Yeah. What are you doing? Um, you're identifying yourself and you're identifying yourself as someone who thinks a certain way about the government as far as the Oops. leverage as <laughs> far as the leverage that the government still holds over you um it's essentially total uh they could like if what you were doing they didn't like well they could freeze your bank account at any time because they control uh interest rates and they did it to the canadians yeah, and if you want a perfect example of that, just look at the Canadian version of the trucker convoy. Um, but yeah, they could do that. They could just stop defending whatever property titles are ascribed to you in name. Um, 
you're exerting absolutely nothing over them by doing this. In fact, from a certain perspective, there's disadvantages to doing so. But if you look at what the Canadian version of the trucker convoy did, well, the reason that the state reacted completely differently to them is because they were blocking supply routes, Mm. which was disrupting supply chains and therefore disrupting the function of the state because supply chains being coordinated is key to maintaining a fiat currency because it's key to maintaining a planned price on the exchange of goods in the legal economy. Yeah, I mean, a little bit inadvertent in what they were doing, but still, it, it's yeah. I don't think they, I don't think they knew what they yeah. were doing, but like, well, they didn't think they, about it that deep. But uh, even they if they did, I mean, either way, based. <laughs> yeah, they weren't looking at it from that perspective, and yeah, it's totally based. But that's the reason that, uh, in response to that, within a few days, uh, the jackboots came in hard with yeah. no lube. They, I think that uh, way when they I can't speed. accept that. I think that I think that way when I speed on the road. Um, yeah. So basically, I, I also wanted to bring up the claim, um, you know, that states are a natural process of civilization. This is one response I also got to this. Uh, well, this was more so somebody talking about just like, uh, well, he, he mentioned ANCAP specifically, but he was talking about like anarchism in general. Um, so, yeah. What, what about that claim that like they are a natural process of civilization and that, you know, they're basically just going to come up no matter what? Well, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, but again, there isn't really a way of trying to calculate this or giving any or give any sort of prognosis for how they come into being. Uh, if techniques were developed early enough in human history where it would have made proprietary organizational dynamics just impossible from the start. It's entirely possible that uh, the world could have, you know, human society could have just developed without states. I don't think that there's any sort of historicist progression. Oh, you get this so wrong. It was just we were, you know, cavemen and then the state came in and we were ushered into this society of beauty. Yeah, and there was like 300,000 years where nothing happened. <laughs> But, uh, okay, real quick. Garen said uh, it's the narrative constantly promoted in state schools during the 1964 Civil Rights Act that the protests got our legislators to give us civil rights. Completely correct. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I could. I'm just reading well, that. Comment. Hold on. If I dislike you owning property, shot your dog, tased you, forcibly handcuffed and kidnapped you, and held you against your will <laughs> in a torture dungeon, it'd be illegal for me, but not for the paid criminals. Well, uh, and ultimate- I mean, that's just like a, what is that? A Sterner quote. <laughs> Yeah, but ultimately what it shows, you know, the, the, the question that people that libertarians really should be asking if they want to understand the condition of freedom uh, as an end that would really be implied by libertarianism as a methodology, because that's ultimately what understanding society in the way that I've described sort of implies. It implies that... Um, Freedom is a condition that's met. It's not really something that can be practiced until, um, you know, until people have, we've actually set some things up that make establishing political organization impossible. I'll give you a perfect example of a way that we could see this expressed in practical terms in modernity. Are you familiar with a geographical area that's informally known as Zomia? Uh, you'll have to explain it. Uh, it's a region in Southeast Asia, mostly um, 
mostly parts like southern parts of China, Nepal, Tibet, the sort of general Himalayan area, uh, some parts of India. Okay. But essentially, it is a region that de facto does not have a pres the presence of a state simply because it's not cost effective for states to be able to establish a presence in these areas. Getting up mm. there and actually coordinating is you know, because of how high high up in elevation it is, it's difficult for communication. Roads up to these regions are like non-existent, so getting a lot of supplies <laughs> up and down is who will build the roads? Yeah. There's no state and no roads. That's uh, we we lost this one honestly. Yeah, we're we're talking about like villages and mountains that have a few dozen people living. In Just them. admit and, that you're wrong about libertarianism. <laughs> <laughs> but um. So these areas are able to function without states, but uh, what actual techniques are available to them is going to be gamified by this environment and the uh, that they have, which is the reason why, like uniformly, even uh, the people living in these areas are almost all subsistence farmers that like don't don't really have access to technique that anyone else does. And that's simply because of the environment, like the way that the environment they're able to act on limits what they can do. I mean, it limits the state from being able to establish a presence up there, but in but it keeps them sort of locked in this situation where they can't leave because that would disrupt this lifestyle and the state exerting power over like exerting power over them, keeping them up there. Um forces them into this particular lifestyle even though it's not being directly claimed by the state mm -hmm. and the state isn't really you know it isn't in any performative means even even interacting with any of these people so like the uh, states existing create a uh, create um indirect expressions of power over people that aren't even really using resources that are being like controlled in any way by political institutions proprietary organization itself being able to act influences at, uh, the way that people can economize with their resources because of the way that uh, it defines norms for societies around them do you have any good resources for reading on how states originally formed? Um, well, the problem is, uh, doc, like if you're going to look for historical analysis, uh, it's practically non-existent prior to, um, like good historical analysis. Yeah. Like it, it's just chroniclers until about the 14th century. And even until like, the, the middle of the 19th century, the mid to late 19th century. Um, it's like mostly propaganda and you have mm -hmm. to read between the lines to even see like, yeah. like to see what's happening. And the only reason that's different in more recent times is again, because of the way the technique has evolved. Yeah. Uh, there was something Garen was telling me about before in a conversation we had Garen, if you're still in here, post that in the chat, but we can see, um, based on the way that states as organizations have to function roughly um at, at the very least what conditions they need to create to form 
and we can see that just in in the state's most basic function a bank and a you know an organization that coordinates a militia um you know this would be perfect you know this would be uh at its most in its most basic sense what's required to establish the way property and economies are expressed in modern societies around us so would this really encompass the state's organizational model and i i do ask that i knowing that there's like more to it essentially and uh how it controls society but i actually wanted to get into the term itself maybe you could explain that a bit more for the audience um well this is in its most i guess if we were to try to characterize it as a form, then in its most base, in its how it's practically expressed, um, in its most like, at, at, at I guess the highest level of abstraction, this is the simplest way of understanding it. But of course, there's more to it. There's the region that's trying to be claimed. Uh, that's going to influence, for instance, the way that the state has to has to um, defend property norms and the way that the state is incentivized to treat property norms in that area. Um, there, there's an economic phenomenon that's pretty much universally documented known as the curse of abundance that would be a great example of this. It's... Uh, why it's why the majority of africa is a complete shithole for example um, i thought it was time preference no it's uh it's just because states there happen to be particularly resource abundant so uh they look don't to quote really... hoppa it's negroid time preference <laughs> yeah it's just because they're black people and want to spend all their money on spinning rims it's not not anything to do with uh their environment or how they can act or how they develop in response to that, like new nutrients or things, things that would influence the way that, uh, one contextualizes the world around them. Yeah. But my bad for interrupting you. I just thought it was, a bit no, it's perfectly, it's perfectly fine, but it's because, uh, it's really just because a lot of these regions are, um, you know, they're particularly abundant in minerals and resources that are key to other mm -hmm. state supply chains. So they don't really have, they don't really have the ability or internal reason to really establish market-based political economies. That's why, they have an almost exclusively imperialistic relationship to other states and why they make they sustain themselves mostly by just exporting uh, mm -hmm. anything internal to um, other states through, um, you know, through the supply chains they coordinate through cartels like the World Trade Organization or the International Monetary Fund. Right. Uh, getting back into the state's organizational model, though, um, I had read a graphic that you had made about this. I believe that was um, it, it had to do with like the media as well in there. Yeah. Well, if you're if some if an organization is operating in the white market at all, it means fundamentally that they have a. <laughs> Yo, hold on. Jeez. <laughs> OK, <laughs> just go on. Um. 
Well, if an organization is operating in the uh, you know in the legal economy at all, I mean, at a very ba- at a very basic level, it means that the state is able to exert leverage over them because they, in order to be a firm operating in the legal economy, they have to uh, be granted property titles. I.e., the state has to say that they're defending all of the resources that are legally ascribed to them and they have to uh, be able to coordinate through the you know through financial institutions which the state could just freeze all of their assets at any point if they didn't like what they're doing we see this being practiced all pretty much practically all the time in modernity so um you know i i characterize the media as in any um in any region that is being claimed by a state essentially just an extension of the political institutions claiming that particular region because if you look at the internal um organization of um like broadcast media institute uh, firms like well, really, any corporation that is operating on broadcast TV and is okay to do so by the FCC, if you look at their internal organization and all of the key functions that cause them to be able to to operate, the state has direct total uh, direct total leverage over them, both in the costs they have to operate around and in the enforcement of their property titles. Yeah, and Tucker Carlson counts as an agent in the media, by the way. I've uh, seen Dave Smith talking about, oh, he's so anti-establishment and all that. But What does that I, even I, mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to mention this real quick. I saw Patrick Bet David talking about this, and he was basically saying apparently the reason that Tucker couldn't come to his show, for example, uh, well, I don't think it was his show necessarily, but what they mentioned when they invited them to or like him to host for their show, right? Um, he didn't say that he was blacklisted from their show, but he said there were certain places he was blacklisted from. Uh, like Tucker. So basically he still had a contract with Fox and like, apparently like according to him, uh, which made it to that when he was moving to somewhere else, he couldn't actually just move anywhere. Uh, so that would kind of imply also like, you know, Fox's interests are still there that, uh, and if Fox is supposedly now this like establishment regime thing, I mean, like it, it is, but like, you know, uh, that's everything. But <laughs> if you're saying that Fox is this corrupt news organization, you know, whatever that means, um, wouldn't that imply Tucker is the same thing too? No, still? I'm, I'm not saying. No, not that, you. I'm just yeah. saying like people in general, like about this stuff. So I, I was just clearing it up because yeah. people, I know people are already going to say like, oh, but what about people like Tucker? Yeah, I'm to clarify, I'm not claiming that all of these organizations are corrupt when they're all through subtext and subtle means all promoting the same narrative. I'm not claiming that there is a formal conspiracy. I'm saying that they're doing this because they all operate around the the uh, same gamified internal incentives that are created by the state. For sure. And I, I didn't say you were saying that at all, but it's good that there's a clarification there because I already know it's going to be misconstrued by people that already view it that way, that there is this like, you know, um, sort of corrupt regime, like, you know, deep state almost within the media as well. Well, and, and what this fundamentally implies is, you know, there, there may or may not be almost there almost certainly are just for the sake of um like trying to create more efficiency within these firms like shadow actors that aren't really operating publicly but are they 
you know, are they the ones that are imposing something upon the state? Well, by the nature of the state, that can't be the case. They can, mm. at the mo at the most, be efficiency experts trying to operate internally. But basically, what this shows is that you, uh, yeah, what the fox well, just said. Uh, there is no deep state. There are there multiple groups vying for power? Um, no fundamentally because right. politics itself is an end and that end is the establishment of fiat property norms i could say something that would get me banned <laughs> about that but it's, it's okay i think i think i'll keep it off for now if we yeah, ever the, go to rumble the, i'll probably say it <laughs> the ability for the state to express power over people is the direct emergent property of politically you know politically established norms on economies and property so they're aren't there can't be competing powers within the state the state is itself a particular expression of power yeah could you provide a definition for like the state's organizational model itself what does that mean when you say that uh when i'm referring to the state's organization model i'm referring to the functions that the state has to perform in order to sustain itself mm -hmm. which is i guess in more practical terms is expressed in the actions that are coordinated by police for instance mm -hmm. or actions that are coordinated by um you know by financial institutions or really uh, any um like any firm that's functioning as a political institution in essence a bureau uh, a bureaucracy within the state deep state and similar narratives are meant to uh imply that any hostility that political organizations have against your interests is a result of quote-unquote bad actors and not organizational interests exactly which is why I, you know i didn't really get into it but a lot of these like you'll notice a lot of these terms like anti-establishment or deep state or corrupt agendas yeah. getting thrown around in the discussion of um you know, particularly nasty things that the state does whenever attention is drawn to them. This is a perfect example of um, sub of subtext and how it actually um, is how it actually functions in media propaganda. Um, essentially, it is a way of slipping baked in assumptions to the claims being made meant to um meant to convey a certain narrative about the relationship between society and the state without directly stating it yeah so, so i mean like to clarify like you know uh as far as what the establishment is like you know i get how people use it but like technically speaking like the people in here you and i and everybody else like we're anti-establishment and what it really means no well, uh, I, I suppose so, but the purpose I mean, of yeah. but, but the purpose of the term is so is that you're supposed to project what you already understand your relationship, your what you already understand about the relationship between um, society and the state onto this label. So mm -hmm. it's it's sort of like the it's sort of like the um, I guess like debate equivalent of cold reading where mm. 
you know, what's being said really doesn't actually imply anything because right. as far as the methodology being referred to, um, it states nothing about how it's characterizing the concepts it refers to. But, um, you know, because you have an investment in this internal narrative, um, like that you you project onto what's being stated it causes you to like from your own perspective to take a statement like this is an anti-establishment agenda and project onto it oh this is a libertarian agenda or oh this is oh, a, okay, this is a reactionary agenda everybody it, it's essentially something that everyone can identify with um that ultimately means nothing but in um as far as the actual statement itself uh, goes. But when you keep in mind that media narratives are uniformly dictated by the, like, what is required for political norms to be established, in practice, what this will, how this will always be applied by political movements or the state is, in some, uh, it will like the means that are be referred to um, by movements that use this sort of rhetoric will always be standing outside with signs and protesting, for instance, or something that ultimately isn't subversive to the function of the state. Yeah. So I want to move on a bit and I actually want to um, talk about, you know, the whole states being, you know, like supposedly ideological in people's view where it's not. And we've already covered that um, speaking on, you know, why that can't be the case. And we've talked about technique. I wanted to ask, you know, just about forms of government, you know, like, you know, supposedly we live in a democracy, uh, you know, it's a, whereas that's really just a psyop, obviously. But like, let's say uh, the system of government that it decides to say it is, is a monarchy or a dictatorship. And like typically people view historical dictators as people that had this like they were the ones with the unilateral decision to do whatever they saw fit uh do you reject this view of uh the historical analysis or do you uh, like how do you see this well i do and i sort of touched upon the reason why when i was talking about the curse of abundance and the reason why political economies are characterized the way they are within certain states um i essentially the perp the way are you familiar with an essay that uh, written by John Hasnas called the the myth of the rule of law? Yeah, Garen talks about that one yeah. a lot. Well, this uh, is essentially just applying the concept of death of the author to the understanding of legal systems, and um, and that is essentially that as far as legal decrees are concerned, uh, they can't they're, they're internally supposed to be like if we were to treat them purely as ideologies or as um as though they're supposed to be the basis for deriving moral rules well you ultimately can't because they refer to concepts that have baked in assumptions uh that can't really like the uniform meaning uh, a uniform meaning to which can't really be established because of the format itself uh, if you were to take for example the first amendment of the u.s constitution um every person has the you know right to freedom of speech well what's freedom and what is speech what's a right and what does that imply about you know speech and one's ability to express it 
this is uh, going to be different depending essentially on the person that's interpreting it, which is the reason why courts are, necess are necessary for a legal system, mm -hmm. why, why judges are necessary. Um, but when you take this into consider, but of course there is a sort of uniformity that um, goes into the way that law is performatively expressed in society, the way that the state enforces it. So if there isn't any, any way to derive any, like any metaphysical foundation from say a constitution, then we would have to refer to something else to explain this sort of uniformity. And this gets back to the functions of, of the state, what's required for the state to, to uh, function internally. And this is going to be different uh, depending on the particular state, because states, depending on um, the technique that they're able to act upon, is that's going to influence the way that they have to defend property norms internally and plan the way money their their fiat money is distributed for their political economy to be able to function and what that would imply is that le the way that legal systems are actually practiced are ultimately just an expression of the economic interests of that particular state and this if we look at what in function a like feudal political economy would entail compared to a mod, um, I guess, a, um, you know, I, if we want to use the term uh, Western capitalist political economy and modernity, then um, what you see is the way that property norms were enforced in feudalism. Uh, the, the reason that that changed is less because there was some sort of ideological movement that changed the function of states and more in response to the way that the state had to change uh, the way it defended property titles in response mm -hmm. to the early technologies of the industrial revolution. I see. All right. So, with that, I also wanted to kind of ask more about the uh, way of viewing the state itself, uh, because something that I definitely was interested in asking about was, were, well, two things, uh, lobbying and campaign finance, sort of just looking at how those two are involved when it comes to, uh, you know, obviously how politicians act uh, with the state and so on. Yeah, well, uh, what specifically were you like? So, yeah, yeah, I, I guess I should go a bit more into depth with this. But oftentimes, you know, when people are analyzing what, you know, the quote unquote problem really is with the government, they'll say like, OK, well, policies like they'll acknowledge that policies just get passed independent of what public opinion is. And then they'll say, well, it's because these lobbyists are so entrenched in the government. I mean, like, look at these uh, laws with it and look at how much money is involved with politics and look at, uh, you know, the campaign finance. Like, obviously, these politicians are bought and paid for yeah. by these corrupt interests. So I was just kind of wondering like that's a, uh, is this just all a psyop like is there anything that has to do with it uh yeah that's how, a, yeah that's another example of what heretic and i were well heretic mentioned but i brought up earlier where um a, a common sort of yeah that's exactly the, the proper way to understand it feudalism became into untenable which is why uh states had to adjust instead uh but but back to what i was uh 
Uh, back yeah. to what I was mentioning a moment ago. God damn it, that looked, that made me that made me lose my train here. Of this will this help uh, you. <laughs> all right. Um, what what was your initial question again? Yeah, no, just having to do with the campaign finance stuff, uh, yeah. lobbying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the reason that this is invoked and the sort of narrative that this implies, this is another way. This is another expression of that propaganda trick that states like um, that states like to pack into their uh, you know th their claims about the relationship between it and society, which is that anytime the state does something bad, it's not actually the state and if 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 they get pinned to where they have to admit okay the state did do this well then it's not actually the state it's some interest that's actually controlling the state and the state doesn't you know doesn't have any interests in inherent to it which is just demonstrably wrong um <laughs> but I suppose in that regard, I would just say the same thing about this that I would any deep state narrative, which yeah. is, um, you know, that this isn't an expression of other interests controlling the state because at any given point, they are legal actors within that particular political economy. And as such, the state exerts the same leverage over them that it would any other legal actor. Um, the relate, the reason, now the reason for, um, lobbying and campaign finance and white market firms trying to cozy up to the state is because um first of all the state defending its pro um the state defending the fundamental bases that their organization model is even made possible around gives them by default a converging interest in def uh, with the state at any given moment in defending the state's interests because you know they need the state to continue functioning for their organization model to continue functioning because part of what makes their organization model even possible is something that the state is doing um but the other particular incentive that corporations and just legal firms in general have for cozying up with the state is that it can secure positions of leverage um, for them over other firms within the white market in practice uh, through sort of like Machiavellian navigation. Uh, if you want an example of what I mean by this, not it's not like really not in the sense of somebody can brown nose the state and get a cozy relationship with that particular politician because of their interests because that has the baked in assumption that the state is coordinated by the interests of that particular politician um so i actually have a little bit more specific things to get into right well i, was, uh, I wasn't exactly finished but what i was just i was gonna okay. give an, i was gonna give an example of uh you know, the, the sort of position Microsoft has been able to work itself into in the white market. Now, Microsoft has unquestionably more leverage than any other, um, like any other firm that specializes in hardware and server infrastructure. Uh, why is that the case? Well, because of the, you know, specifically how they managed to cozy up to the government, they've made it so military computers are using Microsoft server infrastructure uh, to be able to function. So when the state is is coordinating with Microsoft or is trying to coordinate with um 
like the internal function the internal functions of Microsoft as a firm they have to take into consideration some things they wouldn't with say in with say Intel or on the hardware side or Google on the software side they can just dis they can just um, in the case of Google, they could just have any other firm performing the function that Google does in the W3C, uh, the cartel that controls the, the software and hardware side of the white market. With Microsoft, it's a bit more difficult because all of the computers that the government controls are directly, co are directly associated with their server infrastructure. So this is the sort of benefit, um, this is the sort of indirect benefit that firms like Microsoft could gain depending on their particular market and dynamics within um, that, that they could gain uh, associating with the state from their own perspective. And the state, what the state would gain out of that sort of relationship is, well, total control over uh, the server infrastructure of that particular society with available technique. Yeah. So I actually wanted to go back a bit uh, in what I was talking about with the uh, lobbying. So when we're talking like, you know, a politician will be somebody who directly says like, I want to get this bill passed. Like this is my like agenda. This is what legislation is my priority this session. And you know, that's not necessarily just something like they, they will say like, you know, outside of their office. Like, I mean, when they're in their office, they'll say something like this. This is how they'll like, you know, talk to their staff. It's, you know, so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, uh, how do those two things interact? Like the, the idea that, you know, these are, uh, technical agents of the state and that, you know, they're also people with legislative priorities. Yeah, they associate, um, the way that they would look at firms, I guess, in the example of Microsoft, again, they would look at their relationship with firms like that as they would look at, yeah, they, they would look at firms like this as tech, as technicians or extended, um, you know, extended branches of their own internal bureaucracy. In fact, that that is um, that is the presumed function that these firms are supposed to perform, uh, even going into setting up a trade cartel, which is a key part of how the state coordinates uh, how supplies are distributed in certain markets. Um, it, it presupposes that there are these firms with these particular organization structures in place uh, that are able to distribute um, these resources through these supply chains in this way which makes it so we can um certain prices can be set in that region um when those resources are actually sold in the legal economy mm. so it's sort it's something of a symbiotic system but the state ultimately has the leverage over those firms at right. any given moment although you know because of the fact that you know, there, there are practical necessities that the state has to perform in order to maintain this. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the state is all powerful in the existing uh, in the existing property norms that are dominant in society. But this doesn't this doesn't mean that it's infallible and this doesn't mean that uh, everything in that particular society is subordinate to them. 
which is one of the most important things about understanding that there's key functions, like there's key actions that need to be performed to maintain the state, because then we can study those actions and what even makes performing them both incentivized and possible. If you can do that, then you can understand what is, you know, what is actually required to create some sort of resistance against it because you can study what you could do to um to i guess replace this foundation with norms that result in the libertarian condition of freedom by the way that it would that it would incentivize people to act by what it would allow them to do i'm just looking at my comments right now <laughs> there's seeing, a lot going on hold on uh, yeah i'm uh, seeing some of bill them. gates versus mark zuckerberg would be a brawl between two eldritch abominations i doubt you could watch through it without going insane okay well there's a lot of going stuff going on there uh, what i wanted to bring up uh, specifically when i when i made my earlier comment about um you know political agents having these legislative priorities uh i was kind of wondering to what degree are they aware that they are technicians when they're in office like how um like mentally uh for, is that at the forefront of their mentality when they're in office? Uh, I, I, and after that question, I was also just kind of um, like pointing out the whole uh, legislative priorities is perhaps a part of like the incentive system that you can technically have issues you still care about or something like having to do with uh, the reason you would feel so important being in office. I would say it's more of a it would it's more of a phenomenon. Uh, you're familiar with the phenomenon uh, referred to as the banality of evil. Yeah, it. I would say it's more of a a case of that on a grand scale where these are just the norms that appear to define everything in their particular life and society around them. So. Uh, it just sort of becomes their default reference for what they performatively have to do to maintain them, uh, maintain themselves. Mm -hmm. it, so I would say it's not really like they're consciously um, snickering and rubbing their hands together every day that they wake up and thinking, oh, how, how can I fuck people over this today? Um, it, it's more It's more of a sort of indifference, I would say. It's just mm -hmm. this is the position they happen to find themselves in. And uh, because it is the position they happen to find themselves in, they just kind of go along with it. Yeah. So let's address some comments real quick. This one I wanted to look at just because I, actually I was thinking about bringing something like this up, but I had already thought of thought it over. Um, so it, you guys heard or heard about that Joe Rogan call out on that one vaccine doctor. He's talking about um, what was that guy's name? Like Peter. uh Otez or something. So it was like something like that. Whatever his name was. Uh, I heard the charity donation amount uh, to debate RFK Jr. is up to 2.62 million last time I checked. Stream might get taken down just because you used the VAC word. But, <laughs> I've but, used uh, the... the I, I think they let you use it now just fine. All right. I don't know. Uh, uh, just don't use it again and we'll be fine. Yeah, well... But, I'm not really going to say much about that. I haven't really looked into what Joe Rogan said or the particular mm -hmm. per, or the particular person that is being discussed, but I know that there were a lot of like 
there were a lot of opposition uh fake opposition personalities being put out around 2021 2022 that were like make making nonsensical claims about the mm. effects of the of the jab that were just demonstrably wrong as a means of trying to discredit people actually pointing out like the way that uh, well I, I think i have to stop there but have you gotten your uh system rearranged no <laughs> me neither no, and, and i will uh that that is something that like i i would uh I would I would squat an abandoned building with a rifle and like constantly like live looking over my shoulder that if that's what it took to not take it because it uh yeah it's I, I know I know what it does to your system I did a lot of I was actually one of you'll the, have to tell me about that after but yeah go ahead yeah I I was just gonna say if you go back to like early 2021 even late 2020 like we'd already we'd already <laughs> looked at some of the just actually the formula in in it and the way that that affects the uh, how certain genes are like active are expressed in the body and uh, I have to stop there but <laughs> not 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 good. Uh, let's see. Now I have to start reading the comments to make sure I'm not flashing up something. Uh, trust me, nobody wants to see Elon Musk shirtless. God only knows what he looks like without his pants. Okay. Uh, so, uh, no, that's, that's an old one. Okay. Garen commented earlier saying that we should address common counter economic, uh, or sorry, counter arguments or misconceptions about agorist class theory. Well, I got so used to saying counter economics that I I read it like that. Well, considering that the majority of them operate uh, around the assumption that it's like some sort of principle that assumes all of the same like rules about society yeah. that they're assuming. Um, and most of the stream was just dedicated to clarifying why that's the case and what actually emerges out of it. I think we already kind of have, but. I mean, we could. I still got some questions for you. Don't worry. Yeah, we could address some specifically. I have no uh, problem. One with that. I can think of right now. Uh, somebody had asked me a little bit ago when I was talking about this with them. Uh, he said that uh, he was basically saying like, "Oh, well, if you know, could anarchy be a possibility today based on like the whole Agnes uh, class theory?" Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so actually, when you understand um, fundamentally the state at, as an organization model what we spent uh, the, most of the stream discussing what this implies about um like the way norms are established the way it controls society you uh, you can understand the direct path to, uh to undermining the state's ability to continue functioning and it's not only is it possible, but you're when you understand it, you're going to be frustrated how simple it is. Are you hopeful the next time the state falls? Um, not only would I say that I'm hopeful, but I would say in a couple of key regards, um, what's required after the because right now I I don't know how familiar you are with what's happening like in the financial aspect of the oh. political economy but there's <laughs> there, there there is a great, I know about it. <laughs> there is a great depression style total collapse coming yeah. um like it's already at the point where banks are going under and every time a bank goes under the state just redistributes all of their assets to the other banks 
there's what I mentioned about the wage system already. So the, the sort of economic and social dynamics that were present that just kind of drove people some somewhat organically to associate improprietary organization models as being disrupted by technique that's emerging out of decentralized software communities. I would go as far as to say that at this point, um, it's an inevitability that there isn't going to be like, I don't know, I'm not going to give any sort of prognosis, but we're already kind of seeing the downfall of the state in real time. And the only real question is, you know, how, uh, how bad does the transition era have to mm. be for people that are trying to free themselves from the state? Nice. That is actually a pretty good white pill there. Um, let's see what we have here. I don't, I don't know why the Fox is saying I identify as average intelligence. What are we, what am I looking at here in the comments? I don't know. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, shot talk. <laughs> and, I, uh, I identify as a sub genius and as such, I demand <laughs> slack. Local market transactions, digital and taxable currency, good stuff. You know, I was thinking about bringing this up at some point on the stream, just like um, the idea of cryptocurrency. Not that it's just something that people can transact in, uh, you know, that's different than the state's currency, but the idea of like how subversive this is to the banking system when you really think about it, not just like thinking about like, oh, they can't track yeah. it and so they can't tax you, but think about um, like, you know, how they give you a social security number when you're born. You have to get an ID to drive a car. Uh, so uh, you have to be heavily identified by the state. And then the fact is like, that's how they really get you, uh, yeah, especially when you're getting a bank account and when you're like getting a credit card too. And that's the reason why, um, you know, people saying that trading cryptocurrency it, it itself is subversive. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. And the fact that sites like Coinbase exist and are present shows that um, essentially it can, um, like to clarify, it is a subversive tool, but the way that people are understanding how it is subversive is flawed. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are assuming if they just trade with it, you know, for food or whatever, um, that is in and of itself an act of subversion, but they're not asking any of, you know, that they're not looking at firms that are s selling the food they're not looking at them mm -hmm. as internal right. systems and what exactly requires them sustaining themselves and if you look at uh the function of the white market while it is able to co while it is able to coordinate um yeah there essentially is this essentially like if you're trading cryptocurrency, you'll notice that um, its market value is measured against the U.S. dollar or is measured against the local fiat currency in the particular area that it's being traded. Well, this is because it's not really like the act of trading it isn't really using it as money because the norms in that society can only allow for that particular fiat currency to be the medium of exchange because of the artificial costs that the state exerts over people that make them have to use it through the defense of property mm. titles and the artificial costs they can defend by doing so by you know essentially unilaterally dictating what's required to get you know this legal property um 
So crypto, uh, cryptocurrency is a subversive tool, but this was this was noted even by Satoshi Nakamoto um, in you know the papers of Satoshi. It's not supposed to be subversive in the sense that you can just start trading with it and create competing economies because there can't be a competing economy to the existing political economy it mm. isn't something that emerged because people like be organically because people wanted it to it emerged because it forces people to associate through it essentially so Cryptocurrency is a subversive tool in the sense that next time the political economy were to collapse in a Great Depression style collapse, um, when the dynamics of money have changed to where something like what Austrians refer to as commodity money becomes the dominant norm in that particular, like in those particular networks of people using commodity money um it then it essentially means that it's not something that the state can do anything about as far as like as far as trying to force money onto them again because the medium of exchange at that point that the norm in that society is based around is decentralized and decentralized resource uh decentralized means of exchange inherently have advantages over proprietary norms trying to uphold the uh, uphold what's being coordinated Firstly, the sense of trust in those exchanges emerges organically just because everybody in them actually knows one another. And that's the reason for, you know, the network to emerge to begin with. Whereas if you're going to a proprietary organization, the sense of trust is just that organization continuing to maintain, you know, the interactions between the two parties having to go through it, which itself implies there's something outside of all of their control that's making them have to go through it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get back a little bit to uh, what we were talking about, just wrap up on the side of um, the relationship between these political institutions and the state itself. Uh, just talking about political parties specifically. Um, I did want to get uh, into all of them, uh, but not necessarily one by one or anything. I just mean like, you know, not just, you know, Republican, Democrat, oh, this uniparty doing whatever, uh, but sort of just addressing like in the same way of how um, technicians relate to the state. Like uh, what is sort of the goal of uh, having political parties uh, and you know how do they essentially help the state's interests to create the illusion that you have a choice more specific <laughs> more, yeah. more specifically to uh, re to appear retro um, post hoc to reinforce the uh, narrative of uh, the narrative that it tries to promote about its own nature which is that the way that it acts is just an expression of ideology or culture or just all of the assumptions that would go into the way that um, Socratic philosophers characterize Paulus. All right. Well, um, so um, how about the Libertarian I, I think, Party? I was just going, to, uh, all I was going to add on to that is I think Joe Biden himself is uh like there is no better um there, there is no better example of the fact that the presidential outcomes are tactically chosen like 
directed by the state beforehand than to simply look at the fact that Joe Biden is president right around the time that the political economy just happens to be like collapsing and it got to the point where just to keep functioning uh they had the state had to start telling firms that they need to close at certain times to coordinate supply so that <laughs> So you know they could keep the rates of interest without causing debts to default. I actually brought this up on one of my shows. I was saying that it makes sense that Trump wouldn't be in office for this so that he could almost come back because at the time, you know, this whole Trump economy thing, oh, we had such a great economy under Trump, best numbers and all that. Yeah. And then like right at the end of it, obviously there was COVID and, and you know, there was uh, obviously uh, a lot of uh, monetary policy that caused uh, an economic tank. And then you see Trump leave office when Biden comes in. Now all the inflation starts really coming in, but yeah, it started exactly. under Trump, obviously. But like that was just because the state was doing it at that time. But the thing is, now Trump can point to this and say, look at how much Biden has destroyed the economy. I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring it back. And it's maybe beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and, and so now they're going to vote him back or, well, you know, vote, quote unquote, him back in. Uh, like they're going to support, throw support behind him, I should say, because exactly. he's somebody that can now say like, oh, well, Joe Biden was the one that did this. Now I'm going to come back and fix it for you, whereas the state may or may not put in new policy depending on what it needs. Yeah. And Joe Biden serves as a perfect scapegoat because he's literally demented. Right. He's literally demented at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe they can put RFK in and then, uh, you know, dismantle the CIA. And then obviously that, that'll that fix everything, right? Yeah, sure. It won't just be replaced with another bureaucracy that functions exactly the same way. Oh, and I, I brought this up on Vivek Ramaswamy, who's uh, running under the Republican ticket, who's also one of these supposed anti-establishment actors that like wants to dismantle the deep state as well as Trump and RFK and whoever else. Uh, he said that like he wanted to dismantle the FBI, IRS, Department of Education and rebuild where necessary. Yeah, it's, it's not like the CIA, even as is, doesn't already doesn't already function um, with what they refer to as plausible deniability being the priority for literally every strategy that they formulate, which in practical terms means most of the functions of the CIA are not actually performed by the CIA. They're carried out by private contractors that are being mm -hmm. uh, controlled by the CIA or you know, get uh, operating on a, a contract that was uh, issued to them by the CIA. <laughs> So Garen's asking what aspects within the government are controlling who becomes elected? Well, um, as far as specific, as far as specific actors, uh, none, it's more just people who are operate, uh, people that are like controlling the function of the government, simply looking at the current state of the government as an organization and acting on what they think is most tactically sound as far as presentation and as far as um, what would allow for them to be able to like coordinate the government internally as a bureaucracy with that particular person being in that position. Uh, Joe Biden was the obvious case, but, you know, it was the obvious choice from this particular perspective because, well, as I pointed out, he's a dementia patient. He's obviously going to be a fall guy. 
So he's a perfect scapegoat because nobody like who's actually who actually has a political career uh, or a political future from their perspective actually has to take the fall. And because he's a dementia patient, he can essentially just be like his his handlers can essentially just do all the work and he can just sit there for picture uh, for photo ops. So Filthy Heretic says that the document from the FBI describing Operation Eagle 2 strongly implies that the CIA picks who becomes president. And that may very well be the case as far as the actual bureaucracy that plans it. But that, mm-hmm. again, that again doesn't imply that there's a competing power structure. Right. It just implies that they're operating and they operate internally as a uh, as a bureaucracy and that, I, that controls that particular function. I get how that can easily be taken as like, oh, this is a rogue agency doing it and we need to get yeah. back in control of our country. Uh, let's see. So I just mean like how are presidents actually selected or uh, that we know the votes aren't really counted? Well, uh, I would have to look at uh, the documents for Operation Eagle too, because I have to be perfect. Because I have to be perfectly like upfront. I'm not mm-hmm. exactly. I'm not exactly sure which agency or which internal bureaucracy is dictating the process. But with what was already established and the fact that the um, you know the FEC is itself a function of the government and election results and the narrative around elections are all coordinated from organizations that are controlled by or are themselves directly political institutions it's fairly like you can definitively state that there is some sort of process like this happening internally but if there's there's documented proof that it's the cia doing it well there's your answer if that turns out to be the case so what i'm gonna say i mean like it seems like that's another um point of leverage that the state has to basically control the narrative and control you know who's in office and in what position of power uh so i mean it just kind of goes hand in hand with that like if you if you were operating in this way in society wouldn't you want your election system to be run this way like why would it make sense to say like okay well we actually will let the voters choose which uh which one's going to come in yeah why would it be a function independent from the rest of the organization that would that would be like (laughs) that would be like if you apply this reasoning to any other firm that has like an internal like organization model that clear that it clearly has to operate around like this is a good um Actually, this is a good rhetorical technique if you want to try to demonstrate this to someone else without like without them perceiving any sort of investment in the point that you're making. Just apply this reasoning to an organization like Walmart or like some firm just within the white market. It like trying to say like trying to characterize the FEC as independent from the rest of the organization would be like trying to characterize the local management of a Walmart in Baton Rouge as an independent organization from the upper management in uh, corporate headquarters. So Garen said, I think that uh, would be another or another helpful layer of analysis would be to find out specifically what role every actor in the state plays and who controls who. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree that that would be another helpful layer of analysis. Uh, na- um, you know, to be able at least presently to name specific names. Right. But the problem with that, like the problem with basing your claims on that approach, is sort of what you were pointing out um, just a moment ago. That this would allow people that are like trying to make claims about the state to say, "Oh well, uh, if you got rid of the CIA." Well, then this would uh, cause the state to function differently because that love that that internal function would be gone. That sort of implies that um, that sort of implies that this power dynamic is something arbitrarily created like within the state. So then it suggests that there is like an internal political solution to that problem. And there isn't. uh, And that's kind of the. Like, that's the difference in my approach and why I'm taking the particular approach that I do. I don't need mm-hmm. to name specific names. I can demonstrate that this is happening just based on what the state has to do in order to see this being carried out. And I can point to specifically why that has to be the case. Yeah, and I think, uh, well, not to assume Garen does this, obviously not, but like uh, people that are very tied up in, you know, the newest narrative of the state will often point to like specific actors and like who's doing this, like which person, uh, as opposed to like looking at uh, looking to it as like, okay, well, what propaganda is going to be pushed based on what this person is saying? Yeah, and when you start taking that approach, it, you know, it stops mattering who is actually in that particular uh you know, that particular role within the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy is there to serve as a function gamified by what the state has to do to sustain itself. Right. Uh, So I did want to get into, I mean, again, back to the state's organizational model itself. Uh, I had a few questions based on that. First of all, um, is, is the state always incentivized to expand? Um, It depends on what you mean by expand. Right. Uh I don't think, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that the state really can expand power or that Mm -hmm. power can be something that's expanded. Power is just simply the way that particular social dynamics are expressed within that particular, within like the particular group being studied. And um, as I mentioned, what this would imply about politically defended property norms is that they are themselves an end and the state's goal in setting them up is to create the conditions that allow for them to be the base norms that everyone else in society has to operate around um, so that they can control the way property and uh, property works and therefore the money people use in order to uh, you know create a tax scheme. But as far as like i i suppose it would just depend on the specific subject that you're asking about yeah because i'm not talking about like law specifically that it passes i'm just saying sort of like uh growing its control within a society like its ability to uh enforce rules themselves like or the the enforcement itself i should say well in the sense of well i would disagree that that counts as the state's influence expanding uh well i'm not necessarily saying influence i'm just saying like well expand like in the sense of like 
um, well, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever you would characterize what I'm saying as, I guess, if you want to yeah, change the term. That, well, that in and of itself, uh, what that even means is going to be determined by what you consider the nature of the relationship between society and the state to be. Mm. And in the sense that, you know, the, the only sense in which I, I think it even is meaningful to say that the state's influence does um expand or retract would be um would just be the specific areas that the state is trying to set up economic districts for and the sort of presence that it's able to establish in those areas and that's ultimately just going to be based on the resources there that it's able to appropriate it's the reason why uh, it's the reason why a lot of rural areas in the U.S., for example, don't even have police departments because it's not really cost effective mm -hmm. to operate one in those areas. Yeah. Um, so I was I mean, I had this question. I, I sent it to you prior so you know what it is. But uh, when I say this, I just kind of want, you know, um, it's not necessarily like a direct thing. I'll just ask the question, like, what would be the end goal of the state? So I say end goal, like in quotes, like, you know, what is it, what is its goal? Well, I've, um, I mean, I've, I've said this a couple of times in the stream and I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mentioned before we started that just in establishing like the methodology, like yeah. li libertarianism as a methodology that we would end up like answering like a, the same yeah. answer would be given for a lot of these questions but um to the extent which it matters for any particular state as an organization um the interest of any particular state well it's not really capitulating to the market because states create these uh because within political economies and that's an important to, to distinction to make. It's which actors are operating within uh, politically established norms or which ones are trying to, uh, you know, operate without that, um, you know, operate around them. It's going to change their relationship to the state drastically in and of itself. Um, but no, the, the end of the state is just to establish politically defined property norms as the specific, um, like, as specifically the norms that everyone, like, that become the dominant basis for claiming resources or accessing yeah. resources in that society. It doesn't really matter whether or not you have a, um, like, a capitalist political economy, uh, Soviet model, um it's ult like ultimately this is this is going to be at the root of all of them and which particular um internal market is defended by the state is just going to be determined by um what it has to do in order to maintain those particular political dynamics in society in the societies it's trying to control and uh like this is a big like this is a big part of what's missing in well not a big part there's a lot of problems with marxist class theory but uh one of the biggest problems is that it treats class is that it treats um 
it, it treats class as though it's just an inherent form that is present in, um, you know, in society, and it treats the state as though the state is just an it is like a tool to be expressed by those particular classes um, that emerge organically out of society. Sort of, so it sort of implicitly pushes the Socratic polis model of how to understand social norms. And I think what I think we've sort of definitively shown the problems with that throughout the stream. And that's one of the reasons yeah. I would be critical of that particular class analysis. Not that there isn't, you know, that there obviously is a class analysis. It's yeah. just that um, it's just that the na the defining feature of that class is the state establishing itself because right. that is what allows for um, you know that's what allows for this um, set of imposed incentives onto everyone outside of the state to even exist. Right. I did want to get uh, into one more area of this and to ask uh, sort of like, I mean, I get you know, the whole thing of like subverting the state in the first place. And, and I'm not trying to repeat anything here. I'm actually asking uh, when I say, how can states be prevented from forming? Uh, this is almost like if the state has already fallen, what means are there to prevent it from re-arising rather than just subverting it in the first place when it has already arisen? Well, when you understand fundamentally the nature of the, uh, you know, the nature of the state, um, what becomes immediately obvious is that the state is something that can continue that can continue to exist as long as everything that would be required to engineer proprietary social dynamics is still available because um, you need to be uh, because as long as that's possible it'll be um, it will be possible to establish a reserve bank Mm -hmm. And as long as it's possible to establish a reserve bank, uh, this sort of conspiracy can happen again between reserve banks and militia firms. And you can and just like that, you have politically defined norms on property. So what you have to do fundamentally, if you want to make it so the state uh, can't function in that particular society is you have to make it so it's not you have to make it so the things that would like drive people to associate with proprietary third parties are either no longer internally sustainable because like there's some problem with trying to set up a proprietary organization in and of itself uh, say, for example, you create something that causes information problems within management hierarchies. A uh, perfect example would be, you know, bots that use GPT. If uh, you have bots running or if you have bots running around the Internet, uh, making orders, uh, giving, you know, customer feedback quote-unquote in response to social media posts internal management has no way of knowing whether or not these are real customers and real people uh, or just scripts for, uh, created by bots and their internal organization model has to treat them as equivalent mm -hmm. so uh, but, could you kind of lay that out a bit more like how exactly yeah. would that be used uh, against yeah, was, the hierarchy of business itself well, I, w I was absolutely planning. I was planning on doing so. Well, of when you 
um, when you understand fundamentally that um, when you understand fundamentally that the that the ability for firms to operate as they do in the white market is gamified by the defense of political property norms and um, the planning of the medium of exchange in that society. What this implies is that the organization model the itself that they're coordinating around emerges out of artificial an artificial um, sense of incentive or risk that wouldn't be present, either because functions that are key in operating um, that are present because of politically defined property norms wouldn't be without them, or because it externalizes some key cost that would go into making this possible in the first place. Um, and the thing that you have to understand about proprietary organ, uh, like what a proprietary organization itself is, is it is an organization that is serving as a fundamentally as a third party between the exchanges of two other parties that it's kind of connecting through itself. And you have to uh you have to ask based on how we're understanding you know how we've understood how we've understood norms throughout the stream then what what is the reason for people associating with proprietary firms because there's a reason that people do just like they would with any other model of economy that they create and that is fundamentally the sense of incentive and risk that's present which is the reason why artificial costs created by def defending um politically defined property norms is so important it's it's essentially the pressure that drives people towards these proprietary firms because they have to go through these proprietary firms since they're the only firms that can uh, that they can legally get resource get the resources from that would satisfy these costs on maintaining land or being able to continue obtaining resources that they need to sustain themselves. So. What you need to undermine in order to undermine the state's ability to continue functioning, uh, the best approach, I would argue, is that you can create tools that you could create tools that make it so people aren't driven in response to these artificial costs to proprietary firms. And that makes it less um, that makes this that um what this does is it means that i'm i'm uh sorry i'm probably phrasing this poorly but what this causes is it causes the state to be it to um like essentially if it wants to obtain revenue uh from people that are operating in the legal economy it has to do so violently and it can't just, you know, it can't just use these soft power methods of controlling people through proprietary firms. Now, what this does is it means it is it essentially changes the social dynamics of defending um, political political property norms. Mm -hmm. uh, it it they're no longer something that organically is present in that society because the states created. Um, a set, like an internal set of incentives that 
make it essentially interchangeable with sustaining themselves. It's now something that the state can only defend by directly threatening people or pointing guns at them and making them uh, hand over their resources. And that's essentially where this is going. Uh, if people like haven't <laughs> haven't already followed like current trends to their conclusion and already seen a lot of this, well, the, what this like what this causes is an organic demand within societies in response for um, like decentralized techniques or techniques for like evading the state because the state um, defending political property norms is then reframed as a risk factor in those economies because those people simply trying to put food on the table and associate around these new mean these new techniques available to them that have made it so they can function without proprietors now have an interest in defending themselves against the state because the state has been reframed as an antagonist against the organic property norms of that society. Yeah, so you pretty much answered this here as well. Uh, Zach took one of the questions I pretty much was going to ask you. He said, thoughts on how to ensure the black market doesn't go red. You did talk about that basically a little bit. Filthy Heretic also said the abolition of political rule will lower the costs and risks associated with the tools needed for self-defense. Individuals not wanting to be enslaved will prevent red markets from emerging. Yeah, um, and I, I did sort of touch upon that Um I did sort of touch upon that earlier. I mean, a big part of like what is referred to as like red red markets are actually uh, in not fu not like functions of the state, but mm -hmm. are organization models that themselves can only emerge because the state exists. Mm -hmm. uh, the the go-to example that people point to would be mafias. Well, how are mafias able to? economize around extortion fees if every society had different norms on the way that land uh that on the way that property emerged and there wasn't a sort of uniform price associated with maintaining clam claims over certain uh certain homesteads it sort of you sort of run into the same problem with trying to you know, trying to have a, a real estate market where because there aren't politically defined property norms uh, defining homesteads as titles, there can't be a uniform uh, price around how they're traded that would be the same from location to location. So it's not possible to invest resources in trying to create an internal organization model based on treating land in a way which presupposes that these administered prices exist. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. Um, it's not about what people believe within ideology, ideology or ideology or <laughs> ideology. Sorry. It does not put food on the table. Exactly. Uh, when your options are either subversive action or death, one is going to engage in subversive action. But, uh, yeah, so, and to clarify what a subversive action is specifically, uh, is an action which the practical, uh, is an action which either the practical effects of will be subversive to the function of the state's organization model, um, or 
is investing towards developing something or like building something that changes techniques available to people in that society that cause um you know cause internal incentives that everyone else would have to change in such a way where the consequences of this would be subversive to proprietary organization models you 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 in effect can practically identify um subverting the state with uh peer to peer network organization or anything that would make that would incentivize that or externalize risks associated with doing so anyway uh i was just going to say for the people in here cuz i was commenting down there they're saying they like the show already guys if you want to come to the discord server i actually have it linked in uh one of the recent videos over here it was the one that i did with uh it was libertarians react to ron desantis 2024 campaign uh, but if you actually don't want to go to the video for whatever reason, uh, just DM me on Instagram, uh, at civil offense and I'll, I'll DM you the Instagram or sorry, the discord link so you can come in. Yeah. We didn't even touch, we didn't even touch upon, uh, the implications that this understanding of norms in relation to ethics implies about property and how that is different from the way <laughs> yeah. and caps approach the topic. That is because yeah, I, we, I saw oh. I saw somebody refer to to I don't know if they were referring to me, but we're talking about uh, quote unquote right libertarians. I, I oh oh no 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 that wasn't about yeah. you that was justice. Okay. Uh, let me let me find that that was like way up there. Uh, yeah, what, do you know a, the do, a, can you read the exact comment if you have it right now? Um, I'm not looking at the stream on okay. YouTube. I just saw uh, so I just Hold saw on. you pull that up earlier, and I wanted to clarify that this. Uh, uh, this does not result in a defense of Lockheed, the Lockean understanding of property norms because no, he's, property, he's not thinking that you're saying that. Yeah, property would be defined by actions performed that went into establishing something that's being mm -hmm. referred to as property, which would mean that the libertarian understanding of property would consider, uh, you know, would frame private property as a politically defended property norm because it's defend it's defined by legal title rather than active homesteading. Yeah, so that was him saying right libertarians have, uh, or sorry, love to fantasize about antagonizing individual political actors. That was in response to Ignis. Yeah. Uh, without doing anything, uh, without doing anything to challenge the state. I had a bit of an RFK moment there, choking on my. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Uh, as Owen Benjamin likes to say, it was eating too much box. So. But yeah, I would, uh, I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't know if that was like how clearly that was established. You, you do get fund, you do get a fundamentally different, un, uh, different and radical understanding of the nature of societies themselves. Um, when you understand libertarianism as a methodology that w would lead one to butt heads with the way ANCAPs try to approach the topics, but not like, not as like as though you're making antagonistic claims to what ancaps think they want it's more uh th this is a better way of understanding what this actually is that's being talked about yeah uh i think it would definitely be good to have you talk to ashton if we're going to do another ancap versus agorist episode because we had one where we were doing it with uh garen uh, ashton's ignis um so if we're doing one with Ashton again or Ignis, it would be yeah. good to do with you because I, I feel like you're you're able to explain it in a way that maybe we would have uh, a different kind of debate than just him and Garen again doing it. Uh, let's see. Yeah, for Our sure. Our ANCAP's kind of retarded. 
Uh, I wouldn't say that. I would say it's more <laughs> of a. I I would just say it's a stepping stone that a lot of people, you know. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people because I used to be I used to be one myself, mm-hmm. and I just I sort of intuitively understood the state in the way that I'm describing, but there really aren't any frames of reference that I could point to that would just lay it out plainly. A lot of this is like, like I mentioned, a lot of this was inspired by studying the work of logicians that I came across over the years. So it's a a narrative that I kind of had to put together myself a bit, but I think creates a a pretty comprehensive narrative of the sub of the subject that can be uh, demonstrated to be valid in comparison to others. So uh, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say they're retarded uh, or like stupid at all. It's just that you're, you're kind. A lot of people like these people are approaching a topic that is underdeveloped and are just using the tools available to most people right. as context to try to understand it. And I've brought up this term before. I mean, I like I I like to say the word socialized statism. Like it's almost like they and Garen even said this in the last chat or in the last uh, live that he was saying that a lot of uh, quote unquote anarchists like to bring up these uh, like uh, statist institutions as sort of a fix for, you know, an anarchist society. Like they're so ingrained in it that, you know, pretty much their only option mentally is to say like, oh, how will I regulate crime? Like, how would we regulate crime in a free society, even though it's not really a free society if you're putting in these same status mechanisms? Well, that's, yeah, that's one of the implications of not understanding what you're claiming as a competing understanding of how to even approach what a society is. You just end up, because you're making the exact same assumptions that would go into these political narratives about the nature of society, um, regardless of what you've like internalized as the conclusion you think you're reaching it's only going to be just an a priori defense of the norms that characterize existing societies and therefore the conclusion that you reach because politics is an end ultimately and not a means is really just going to be a post hoc defense of political institutions from a from slightly different phrasing or a slightly different ideological framework. Garen says that a lot of ANCAPs understandably have the impression that being critical of the ANCAP movement results in bring, being critical of property rights, anti-statism, and the Austri- uh, Austrian methodology. And as I've demonstrated throughout this stream, no, it absolutely does not. Actually, if you take libert- uh, Austro-libertarianism to its logical conclusion, it implies a criticism of capitalism as a type as uh the the specific property norms that would characterize that kind of political economy but uh really all political economies in general yeah there's a lot of uh income talk happening in my comments right now like just a whole discussion between people um I yeah, mean, just basically like so Zach started with like our incomes and oxymoron and people were pretty um, understandably saying like no because <laughs> yeah, uh, they're I not Marxists if they're actual incomes. I think that the ANCOM movement has sort of the same problem that I was just touching upon with the ANCAP movement. Yeah. In fact, um, the concept of communism doesn't even really necessarily have connotations to Marxism. There's a co- mm-hmm. There is a uh, concept in liberalism known as equality of authority that kind of emerged out of... Um, 
out it emerged out of liberalism but it's something that early libertarians tried to defend and it's because of because their assumptions about the nature of society were based on the socratic understanding of polis what they tried to, what a lot of these early thinkers tried to do is they tried to create a principle for like ideologically identifying with the concept of equality of authority uh, in the same way that ANCAPs have sort of tried to create a principle to band-aid lock the Lockean assumptions of property norms without a status framework, that being the non-aggression principle. And what emerged out of trying to turn this into a principle is communism. Mm -hmm. And based on the fact that, you know, based on the fact that this in this uh equality of authority in and of itself is another concept that has a bunch of baked in assumptions about the nature of action i would have the same criticism of it that i would of the non-aggression principle these are emergent properties of how people act and in the case of equality of authority um, equality of authority is a defining feature of the libertarian condition of freedom, which is an end that is met as the result of performing specific means. So it's not necessarily that I would say it's like in that sense hostile to anarchism. It's just um, trying to treat it as a principle creates some methodological issues. Okay, so we have quite a few different comments that could get into really long discussions about things. But uh, real quick, capitalism is simply voluntary exchange. No, it's a economic system. It, it's a, so. Yeah, it's a specific type of political economy where mar um, the markets that emerge within it are just based on people um, exchanging resources they have private titles to with others. But as I, you know, as I spent most of the stream demonstrating, that is neither voluntary or a free exchange. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, let's see. So whereas many incomes also assume being critical of them means that you're a capitalist shill. It's, you know, it's really uh, funny that a lot of ANCAPs, you know, glorify the uh, like points to and glorify the kill, like the kill dozer event, as you're familiar with, because <laughs> the events which actually led up to Marvin Hemeyer building the key dozer, the, the kill dozer, I mean, is actually a perfect example of the defense of private property being used in an aggressive context. Yeah, because that's sure. because that's exactly what put him in that situation. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't the state uh, setting up a political institution there or acting through a political institution. It was somebody claiming the unclaimed property, which you know was the road that led to his right. mechanic shop. Um, it was somebody requesting the state to set a prop set up a property title there, which the state defended and that effectively starved him and you know killed his business. And then acting through media to uh, make him look bad. Yeah. Uh, then, let's see. Uh, Real quick. Uh, Zach says, though through the communist society, or yeah, he's basically claiming communist would be or communism would be uh, stateless. So why call oneself an ANCOM when you can simply refer to one as a communist? And uh, the Fox says communists aren't stateless. Well, I mean, there's 
incomes, well, I, but I yeah. wouldn't. I, I I don't identify with the ancom movement, and I just explained why. I'm not necessarily and I'm not necessarily antagonistic to it. I'm not necessarily antagonistic towards ancaps. I think that you're just. I, I think I would say that these people are trying to approach a problem that they like. They're trying to approach a, a problem with a lens of analysis that isn't going to work if they actually want to understand it. Yeah, I mean, and, and the point being, I don't necessarily think he's saying you're saying that uh, that you are. Uh, just point being here, like he believes what Marx said as far as like, oh, actually, the end of communism or like the end goal is a stateless society, like along with the whole like you know cashless and all that. Like basically saying like, oh, Marx Marx's ends are actually like valid in what he was saying he wanted. Like you know, obviously that's 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 obviously what he wanted, right? Well, and that's. A problem with trying to treat communism as a principle is not every society is going to have its economic norms expressed in uh, in a way that would like incentivize the actors within that economy to engage in uh, you know to engage in mutual aid. Some of those, uh, if there aren't any artificial costs being imposed on them, gamifying their internal incentives then uh, that's simply going to be an expression of the associations people create with one another. And uh, the technique that they prefer to use, not just what's available to them. Yeah, so I'm just going to, why is Russia collapse trending on Twitter? I don't know. Uh, Garen says that it's not a semantic argument. If you want to use capitalism to refer to markets freed from the state, that's fine. There just comes with a lot of major problems in doing so. Correct. He said like, uh, no, sorry, wrong one. Like conflating fiat norms and, mod and modernity. Yeah, I, I, I create, I, I pointed out a, an, a perfectly sound methodological issue that trying to treat this as a semantic argument creates. Libertarians are fundamentally characterizing homesteading differently than Lockeans would. Yeah. And then he says, because keep in mind, if you're going to use that definition, it wouldn't be an economic system or have any specific model or form or refer to corporate titles or contract norms. Uh, let's see. A major step in persuading people on stuff uh, is agreeing on definitions. And a problem is that not everyone agrees on these definitions. Well, the thing with what I'm describing is that it's not uh, that again tries to treat this as a semantic argument. You do not need to be an ideological proponent of anarchism, i.e. somebody who deliberately agitates towards achieving the libertarian condition of freedom. You don't need to be somebody that thinks that in order to make these exact claims about the nature of society's relationship to the state. What I'm laying out here is a methodology that is ba that's based on a specific metaphysical foundation that could be dem that could be demonstrated in a value-free analysis. So, I mean, you could dislike what I'm saying here all all that you want, but the only way that that's really going to matter in any meaningful sense is if you, you know, try try to make a counterclaim, you know, point to uh, something that would refute one of my claims. Because that's kind of where we're at at this point. It's not... It's, it's, Be more Benjamin Tucker and less Tucker Carlson. Yes. Exactly. Uh, one last thing, one last chat we're going to take right here, unless, you know, there happens to be anything in the midst of this. But like, uh, as far as the arguments go, or just in general, uh, the Fox wants you to explain the valid criteria for making a claim to self-ownership. Uh, I had Ashton do that last stream as well, so it'd probably be good to hear the comparison on that. 
Well, I don't necessarily. I, I wouldn't necessarily even like refer to uh, self ownership uh, because, like, my understand, like the way I would characterize property is not based on an a priori principle. It's based mm -hmm. on the performative means that went into establishing something that's being considered property. So, I. I I wouldn't uh, argue that this concludes with a theory of justice or a framework that tries to justify specific behaviors that people engage in. I would say that this creates um, this creates more of a methodological foundation for studying power, uh, what Foucault refers to as power relations, mm -hmm. and essentially, like what I would argue is that if if something were to be claimed as a resource in a free society, then that would have to be dependent on people being able to act in such a way where they, you know, they ultimately are like, if they ultimately are the ones who have a say over the resource that they're acting on, and that's based on their ability to back that up with action. Can you uh, like explain what you mean by that uh, backing up with action? So somebody is uh, claiming a specific tree and somebody else attempts to act on that tree. The person that is initially acting on the tree is able to uh, tell the other person to uh, go away. And if the other person doesn't want to, they can simply back, they can back that up with a demonstration of force and the norms that are present within that particular society won't penalize them for doing so or won't exert risk over them for doing so. The, the initial person making that claim. Okay. So this is just like a, an idea that the norms should be this way. Well, uh, I'm kind of wondering yeah. like, you well, know, what is it? Saying, what is it I'm not okay. saying they should be. I'm saying that a free society is a society where property norms are expressed in this way. Okay. So why is that the case? That's the case because this is the this is a um this is a fundamental basis for establishing um uh, for establishing property that would make any system of trying to to define property uh by title fundamentally impossible yeah i mean i'd be interested to see you talk that out with us so because i mean like there's not too much of a disagreement here uh in a lot of it i mean like obviously he is more on the hoppy side of things in a lot of this but um well my fundamental problem i mean i don't think that anybody who is like identifying with the hoppian movement is a subverse is a conscious subversive i think that it's just a lot of people who were looking for answers to these same problems and you know found hoppianism because this you know it happens to be just incidentally the most available resource on a lot of these questions related to libertarianism yeah. and a lot True. of these a lot of these quote-unquote problems that uh argue things like argumentation ethics supposedly provides an answer to aren't even really problems with libertarianism to begin with they're problems introduced by making assumptions like that societies have their norms defined by policy, by polis, mm -hmm. uh, A equals A being the defining basis for what action implies, and so on. I, I mean, that's no police, then you have to tell them to F off or get shot. Yeah, I mean, really, if you want to, if the, the day that 
like society becomes free, it's not going to it's not going to look like everybody agrees that the non-aggression principle right. is valid. It, it's going to look like cops trying to come into your neighborhood and every person on the street stands outside with a rifle to stand them down <laughs> and they they drive away and never come back. That's that's what a free society looks like. No, I mean I completely agree with that. Uh let's see. A lot of people have become too comfortable with not defending their property. Well, it's not just that they've become comfortable, it's that the state actively yeah. threatens them if they do because the state needs to be the person that defines how property is right. defended. It need it needs to be the the influence, I should say completely agreed on that too um yeah but overall i, I think we're gonna <laughs> wrap it up soon but it, it's been great having this conversation honestly yeah. i think you have you have a lot of great answers for all this stuff i'm glad to see you return to the youtube space with this i mean it's, it's a pretty good return if i do say so <laughs> yeah um, um but I, i'm gonna go ahead and let you just like you know shout out anything you have i mean obviously promote your channel and, and just talk about anything you have upcoming that you want to talk about uh any closing thoughts as well all right. Yeah, it does seem like that there's a lot more that we could talk about here. I mean, there's a bunch of subjects that I was only really able to lightly touch upon. I only really was able to touch upon them to the point where it would demonstrate their nature in a way that somebody watching could understand. Um, but yeah, I'm Esso, also known as Esoteric Entity, one of the co-hosts for the channel Back Alley Philosophy. We're going to be coming back within uh, the next month. There's going to be a new essay we're currently working on, and it's going to be an essay, actually, that touches upon a lot of what particularly was brought up towards the end of the stream here in much greater detail. And it's going to... Uh, you know, just based on some of the questions that it raises, I imagine that it's going to be, I, I'm hoping at least it's returning with a bang, so to speak. And we have plans for the back alley as a community on Discord that is that are in the works, but, you know, uh, we're going to want to work towards that by the time uh, around the time the video is up. But yeah, um, we're we're back and we are I, so back. Yeah, I I I don't know. I guess I sort of had to. Re, I guess I sort of had to reevaluate um my priorities around how I saw the purpose of making content in and of itself. And I finally am, you know, I, I finally am putting out content. I would say that would be able to answer a lot of the questions that I personally had. And I imagine a lot of people are going to be able to at least appreciate the perspective I bring to the table going forward. Write the script, write the script, write the script. Yeah, that's, I'm going to be working on that pretty much as soon as the stream ends. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I mean, that's pretty much it for today. Again, this has been a great conversation. I'm glad to have had this, honestly, like I, a lot of the questions I've had, uh, you know, honestly, Garen and I have talked oh, a lot um, of it through, but it's been really good to talk yeah, with you on that. Very, uh, you, very you quick, something? Sure. Yeah, very quickly. We're also going to we're also going to be setting up peer tube and library pages for the back alley and uh, nice. we'll be uploading content there that's not going to be on youtube because just i mean in this stream there's a couple of times where we ran into youtube's terms of service i mean we're going to be discussing specific specific organizational tactics and 
things that can be designed that are demonstrably subversive to the state and why once we return. I mean, we've been studying on more than just metaphysics while we've been gone. And that stuff, I can tell you for certain, is not going to be allowed on YouTube. But, <coughs> yeah. Hey, Rumble. Yep. Uh, library and PeerTube for the spicier content. But that's a bit further in the future. Thank you, Blue Shark. I did see you come in. I gave you a to viewer world so that you can see the channels uh yeah so pretty much it remember guys uh you can find me at uh ahmed Mali. well i mean if you just search that up but ahmlih uh, is my actual handle for me it's at civil offense on all social media uh pretty much just like comment subscribe remember to do that and remember guys it is not so over because civil offense is the key to winning join the back alley if you're looking to network p2p it's going to be a hub and i mean yep. it's a type of hub right well, <laughs> all right guys well, yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's it's a hub. Hub yep. premium actually. All right. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Yep, see.